Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is part two of chapter two, an episode we're going to call Bill Gates Gets the Internet. James Allard was a young Microsoft hire, fresh out of college, when on his second working day at Microsoft in September of 1991, Steve Ballmer burst into his office. Hey, I hear you know something about this TCP IP thing, the executive vice president for sales and support said to him. It was the bane of Balmer's existence. Corporate clients and government clients were asking Microsoft to deliver it as a feature, and Balmer didn't understand, quote, any of that crap. Just make it go away, will you? End quote. Jay Allard had come to Microsoft because he did understand that crap, and it was his mission in life to get Microsoft to understand it also. Born in 1969, Allard graduated from Boston University in 1991 with a degree in computer science. A new generation of computer geek, Allard was obsessed with what you could do with computers when you hooked them all together. Allard was networking and networks. Of course he knew what TCP IP was, it was, and is, the basic internet standard that allows two computers to communicate with each other on a network, no matter what their make or model. Microsoft was sort of an odd company for Allard to go to work with, since networking was not something Microsoft was very good at, or seemingly very interested in. This lack of interest had allowed Novell to snatch the networking software market out from under Microsoft's nose. It was yet another errant software market that Bill Gates was moving to bring under Microsoft's domination. 
Thus, young networking experts like Allard were being recruited to Microsoft to give the company networking know-how. Allard could certainly make Balmer's pain go away, and he did so. He contributed heavily to the development of the Windows Sockets, or WinSock API, which would be the first Microsoft program to incorporate TCP IP standards, and thus internet capabilities. But he didn't stop there. Development of Windows 95, as it would eventually be called, was in full swing, and Allard was bound and determined that the internet should be a major part of it. Allard was convinced that the internet was the next big thing in computing. And if he could get Microsoft to embrace it, with the newest version of Windows, then he could probably help the internet go mainstream. Allard took it upon himself to become Microsoft's face to the internet community, such as it existed at that time. His first batch of Microsoft business cards read, James Allard, Program Manager, TCP IP Technologies. He represented Microsoft at early internet confabs, like the Internet Engineering Task Force, and made sure that Microsoft became a founding member of the Internet Society. In early 1993, Allard started an in-house Microsoft discussion group on the Internet called InetDisk. Out of 14,000 Microsoft employees at the time, five people joined. When the World Wide Web came along, Allard's belief in the Internet as the future of computing redoubled. On January 25, 1994, around the same time that Mark Andreessen was first getting to know Jim Clark, Allard wrote an internal Microsoft memo titled, Windows, the next killer application on the Internet. The memo outlined the recent explosion of growth on the Internet, 25 million users growing at a rate of 5% per month, and Mosaic, which had 700,000 copies downloaded at that point. Allard asserted that the Internet represented a great opportunity for Microsoft. Quote, By embracing current technologies available on the Internet, we position Windows as the choice system for interactive Internet services and prepare for the shift to the native IAYF, again, there's Bill Gates' favorite acronym, information at your fingertips, technologies offered by Microsoft products, end quote. One of the people CC'd on the memo was Stephen Sanofsky. Sanofsky, born 1965, graduated from Cornell University, 1987, was another young Microsofty enamored with the Internet. Sanofsky's job title was a bit more impressive, however. He was the technical assistant to the CEO, Bill Gates. Every couple years or so, Gates liked to bring on a new assistant whose purview was to keep the CEO abreast of industry and technology trends. A heavy internet user in his college days, Sanofsky had given Gates a personal guided tour of an array of internet tools as recently as October 1993, including a browsing session on the nascent World Wide Web. As usual, Gates was intrigued, but not overly impressed. It still seemed like a fringe technology to him, not at all ready for the mainstream, as we've seen in the previous episode. At the time of Allard's memo, 
By chance, Sinofsky had just taken part in a recruiting trip to his alma mater. In between interviewing bright young prospects for possible employment with Microsoft, he couldn't help but notice how prevalent the Internet had become in everyday campus life at Cornell. Here was a generation of kids who were coming into the workforce with a proficiency in and a strong affinity for things like email, web browsers, and newsgroups. On Valentine's Day, February 14, 1994, Sanofsky wrote an email of his own with the title, Cornell is Wired. Sanofsky's missive, coming on the heels of Allard's memo, began to stir interest at the highest levels of Microsoft. At a strategic retreat for upper-level Microsoft management on April 7, 1994, coincidentally two days before Netscape was officially founded, Gates was ready to entertain the possibilities of the Internet in a more serious way. He told the assembled, quote, Everywhere I go, people ask me about how Microsoft will be on the Internet. End quote. But did this mean simply enabling Internet tools within Windows? Did it mean making software tools like Mosaic? Did it just mean an online service like Prodigy or AOL? Microsoft was already developing one of those, codenamed Marvel, which was scheduled to launch with Windows 95. One thing Gates was still sure of at that point was that the Internet might be able to deliver information at your fingertips, but it did so in an extremely limited way. It couldn't do movies, television, or shopping, so far as he could see. For that sort of thing, he still believed that the information superhighway was the way to go. And to Gates's mind, the biggest problem of all was that everything on the Internet was free. That was not a small point to overlook. Gates could see how Microsoft could make money on the information superhighway, but he couldn't see how it could make money on the Internet. Allard and Sanofsky were ready to argue these points. Sanofsky had put together a comprehensive 300-page catalog of Internet items he had collected, designed to show the breadth and scope of what was already out there. These curios included sites that were beginning to host not just images, but also streaming and downloadable music, and even video. Allard followed up by evangelizing hard for incorporating the Internet into everything Microsoft would be doing with Windows 95. The Internet might be limited at the moment, Allard argued, but the standards of the Internet, and HTML especially, were open enough and robust enough that over time, the Internet could evolve to do everything that the information superhighway promised, and more. He figured it would be better long-term for Microsoft to take a role leading the development of those standards. As he saw it, the Internet could be the killer application for Windows 95, the thing that would set it as the new gold standard and the most forward-thinking platform. Gates is a man who likes to hedge his bets. And so, even though he still wasn't entirely convinced by the Internet at this point, he wasn't against Microsoft dipping its toe, or a couple toes, into the water. Two weeks after the executive retreat, Gates issued a memo summarizing the key talking points. The Internet was going to be very important, he posited. 
The company should move forward and incorporate internet protocols like TCP IP into Windows itself. Users should be able to exchange files over the internet, and the online service, again at that point called Marvel, would be used as a gateway to introduce Windows users to the web and the internet in general. Email certainly had a place in Windows. Microsoft Word, in fact, might be a useful tool for viewing and editing internet documents. In the memo, Gates wrote, quote, We want to, and will, invest resources to be a leader in internet support, fully understanding that if we are wrong about this, it will have been a mistake, end quote. But at least they would be covering their bases. Gates put the team of Allard and Sanofsky on the internet full-time, asking the duo to come up with an architecture and plan for moving forward. Allard was made the public face of internet services, at least until Gates settled on a firm long-term stance for Microsoft. Almost immediately, the question arose, what about doing something like a Microsoft version of Mosaic? Doing a Microsoft browser was an obvious first step, but it was a separate, tricky issue. Could Microsoft even integrate browsing technology into Windows? At that very moment, Microsoft lawyers were working with the Justice Department to hammer out the language of the consent decree. If you'll recall from the previous episode, the consent decree was what Microsoft had agreed to in order to avoid an antitrust trial. Coincidentally or not, in the summer of 1994, Gates was lobbying hard with the government to try to retain the right to integrate new products and new features into Windows, lest Microsoft lose the ability to innovate at all. The final consent decree ended up including the clause, quote, This provision in and of itself shall not be construed to prohibit Microsoft from developing integrated products. It's not clear at this point if Gates was thinking specifically of a web browser or integrating the internet into Windows when he fought for this clause, but the wording is certainly interesting and it certainly came in handy only a few years down the road. Over the summer and fall of 1994, as the final mad scramble to ship Windows 95 shifted into high gear, Gates' thinking on the internet continued to evolve more. In October, Gates issued a memo of his own entitled, Sea Change Brings Opportunity. The memo declared that the company's newest cash cow, the Microsoft Office Suite, was actually undergoing a technological shift as dramatic as the shift to graphical user interfaces just a few years previously. Gates said, quote, I believe we are in the midst of another major sea change which is the move to electronic communication with office documents, end quote. He went on to highlight all the ways that the Internet and greater networking and connectivity in general might impact programs like Word and Excel. Crucially, Gates was beginning to see ways in which the Internet might challenge existing Microsoft products. Again, quoting from the memo, quote, the sea change to electronic information sharing is a particularly important one because it will bring us closer to our customers, end quote. But there was a big potential downside also, quote, 
it will also bring competitors and free software closer to our customers. End quote. In short order, a couple of related events would further evolve Gates' thinking. As a part of dipping its toe into the internet waters, the idea of a Microsoft web browser continued to be discussed. Gates was an advocate for designing a browser in-house if needs be, consent decree be damned. But just as with IBM and the birth of the PC, Microsoft was under the gun. With Windows 95 scheduled to launch soon, if Microsoft was going to offer a browser as a part of that launch, it needed a credible browser sooner rather than later. Microsoft started shopping around for available solutions. The company entered talks with a small software company named BookLink Technologies, which had a Windows-based browser called Internetworks. And negotiations were far enough down the road that Microsoft considered the deal almost done, with licensing terms in the neighborhood of a few million dollars in total. But suddenly, in November 1994, BookLink announced that the entire company had been acquired, and not for a few million dollars, but for 30 million. The buyer was none other than America Online, the online service. 30 million dollars for a browser. Suddenly, someone certainly saw a big value in the web. As Microsoft executive Brad Silverberg, the man in charge of Windows 95 development, put it later, quote, that woke us up. We had to be a lot more aggressive, a lot more lively, end quote. Moving to Plan B, Microsoft tentatively reached out to none other than Netscape to learn about their upcoming browser. Maybe that could be licensed for Windows 95. And here Microsoft received another shock. Netscape rebuffed Microsoft's overtures completely, and as Microsoft saw it, they did so somewhat rudely. Netscape told Microsoft that they did not have any intention of doing business with them. And that was not off the cuff, that was the official response. In fact, Netscape made it known in no uncertain terms that no one was particularly a fan of Microsoft around Netscape headquarters. Who were these Netscape guys and what did they have against Microsoft? Why weren't they willing to do business? Well, Microsoft didn't know it, but we know from previous episodes that Netscape believed that it was sitting on a gold mine, and that gold mine was only there for the taking so long as they could keep it out of Microsoft's field of vision. And then, of course, came the release of Netscape Navigator, and suddenly it all made sense. With the launch of Navigator came the millions and millions of downloads and all the attendant media attention. In a few short months, Netscape became Silicon Valley's new darling. And so much of the related hype came with pointed barbs that seemed to be aimed squarely at Microsoft. More than once, journalists had hailed Mark Andreessen as the next Bill Gates. And then there was Andreessen himself taking pot shots at Microsoft and the press. That couldn't help but get Bill Gates' attention. Netscape, of course, stormed to the lead of the browser pack with Navigator, eventually gaining 25 to 30 million users and 80% of the browser market. 
Perhaps Navigator's launch was the final catalyzing moment that completed Bill Gates' transformation into an internet true believer. After all, nothing got under Gates's skin more than seeing a software market he did not have a dominant control of. Netscape had proven that web browsers were an enormous market. Furthermore, lots of people inside and outside of Netscape were already seeing what Mark Andreessen had seen. The browser could be a software platform capable of supplanting traditional operating systems like Windows. If, in the future, people could live their lives and do their work entirely online, then what would be the need for a desktop OS? As Paul Moritz, group vice president of Microsoft's Platforms Group, put it, quote, Web pages became applications. Netscape Java is using the browser to create a virtual operating system. Windows will become devalued and eventually replaceable? Microsoft executive Silverberg said later, quote, I want to thank Netscape. All this trash talk helped us get motivated. End quote. Bill Gates finally got the internet when it became obvious that the web represented a threat to everything he had spent 20 years building. On May 26, 1995, Gates wrote a memo to senior Microsoft executives entitled, the Internet Tidal Wave, it would become one of the most famous documents of the Internet era. In it, Gates announced that the number one priority for Microsoft, in every facet of its business, was now the Internet. Every product manager should stop what they were doing and start considering how the Internet could affect their products or how their products could make an impact on the Internet. Gates was not afraid to acknowledge his past reticence, but he made clear those days were over. Quoting from the memo now, Gates said, quote, I have gone through several stages of increasing my views of its importance. Now I assign the Internet the highest level of importance. In this memo, I want to make clear that our focus on the Internet is crucial to every part of our business. The Internet is the most important single development to come along since the IBM PC was introduced in 1981. It is even more important than the arrival of the graphical user interface. End quote. And Gates made clear who the first prime competitor would be as Microsoft now changed direction. Quoting again, A new competitor born on the Internet is Netscape. Their browser is dominant with 70% usage share, allowing them to determine which network extensions will catch on. They are pursuing a multi-platform strategy where they move the key API into the client to commoditize the underlying operating system. They have attracted a number of public network operators to use their platform to offer information and directory services. We have to match and beat their offerings including working with MCI, newspapers, and others who are considering their products. End quote. The word went forth from that day. Microsoft would jump on the internet in a big way. And Netscape would be public enemy number one. Internet capabilities were hastily added to the already delayed Windows 95. An extra $1.5 was set aside for research and development. 
A crash program was launched to develop a Microsoft web browser, eventually called Internet Explorer. Having lost the BookLink browser to AOL, and having been rebuffed by Netscape, Microsoft was forced to turn to the most logical remaining choice, Spyglass, the company that was licensed to sell the original Mosaic web browser. Microsoft signed a $2 million licensing agreement with Spyglass to use Mosaic code for Windows 95. Irony of ironies, then, that the code that would be the basis for Microsoft's web browser and the weapon that Microsoft would wield against Netscape was the same code written by Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina a few years before at the NCSA. Internet Explorer was readied for launch alongside Windows 95. The original Internet Explorer team was a commando unit of five or six programmers. Their orders were to get the browser done quick and dirty if necessary, but the emphasis was on quick. They would follow the traditional Microsoft game plan. The first version would be a copycat product that didn't have to be great, it just had to be good enough to enter the market. Subsequent versions would, of course, be better. By version 3.0 in 1996, in fact, the Internet Explorer team had grown to about 100 engineers. By 1999, the IE team would number more than 1,000. Having identified Netscape and the browser as the key strategic targets, Microsoft also returned to many of their tried-and-true methods for making up for lost time. The first obvious strategy was to simply have the company throw its weight around. With all of Microsoft's 20,000 employees now marching in the same Internet-centric direction, Netscape's 1,000-odd employees were clearly outnumbered. And Microsoft's $8 billion or so in revenue could clearly overawe Netscape's eventual $300 million or so in yearly revenue. And this lent itself to another obvious strategy, an oldie but a good one. Price competition. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Upon its release in August of 1995, Microsoft announced that Internet Explorer would be free. Not kinda sorta free, wink wink free like Netscape Navigator was, but 100% free to anyone and everyone. On every platform. Windows, Macintosh, Unix, whatever. As Gates himself admitted, quote, One thing to remember about Microsoft, we don't need to make any revenue from Internet software. End quote. Furthermore, the intention was to bundle Internet Explorer as a component of Windows 95. Microsoft wanted users to think of Internet Explorer as a core function of Windows itself, just as Jay Allard had argued months before. It was to be seen as a routine part of the OS, just like screensavers or disk compression utilities or file managers. Internet Explorer would sit prominently on every Windows machine, a smiling blue E icon, on every desktop that ran Windows. This, of course, was not a small consideration. 
When Windows 95 finally launched on August 24th, 1995, two weeks, coincidentally, after the Netscape IPO, it was possibly the largest product launch in history. Computer stores around the world opened at midnight, and lines of eager customers queued up to be the first to nab a copy of the program. A video featuring Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry was released to show off the program's features. Comedian Jay Leno joined Bill Gates on stage to emcee the official launch event. Here's a fun little quote from Leno from the day itself. I do it in a Leno accent, but probably that would sound terrible, so... Quote, to give you an idea of how powerful Windows 95 is, it is able to keep track of all of OJ's alibis at once, end quote. It was 1995, after all. Microsoft also bought the entire press run of the Times of London to give away for free, alongside Windows adverts, of course. In Toronto, a 500-foot banner was hung from the Canadian National Tower. In New York, the Empire State Building was lit up in the colors of the Windows 95 logo. And famously, the Rolling Stones were paid a reported $14 million to use their song Start Me Up in the Windows 95 commercials. All in all, Microsoft spent around $300 million making sure that Windows 95 was a blockbuster. Windows 95 was, of course, the culmination of nearly 15 years of Microsoft's operating system and platform strategy. In many ways, it was Bill Gates' crowning achievement, the thing that finally solidified his stranglehold on the computer and software industries. Having Internet Explorer piggyback on Windows 95's launch was a powerful strategic move. The Internet was still very, very young, and so plenty of users would encounter it for the first time via Windows 95. The first versions of Internet Explorer were not very well received, and were compared poorly to Netscape Navigator when it came to features and performance. But Internet Explorer was right there, automatically, on every Windows machine. To get a copy of Navigator, conversely, you had to go out onto the Internet, search it out, and download and install it yourself. Not an easy feat for Internet newbies. The combination of the Windows 95 launch and the joining of battle with Netscape seemed to invigorate Bill Gates. On December 7, 1995, Gates addressed media and financial analysts to double down on Microsoft's Internet commitment. He told the assembled, quote, The Internet is pervasive in everything that we're doing, end quote. Using questionable taste, considering the date, Gates quoted Japanese Admiral Yamamoto, who led the raid on Pearl Harbor in 1941, saying, quote, I fear we have awakened a sleeping giant, end quote. The December 7th speech lasted a grueling seven hours. When a Microsoft PR flack asked Gates for a summary of the event for the gathered media, he shouted, quote, I just want them to get that we're hardcore about the Internet, end quote. Let's pause and appreciate what an amazing pivot Bill Gates and Microsoft have made in quite a short period of time. Only a few months previous, Gates had described web browsers as, quote, bullshit, unquote, as a product. Now, and only a few short months after Windows 95 had even launched, he had refocused all of Microsoft's energies on the web browser as perhaps the most important product for Microsoft's future. 
Microsoft in general had been dismissive of the internet and the web as being narrowband technologies. But when these narrowband technologies took off, the shift was made to position these same technologies into literally every product in Microsoft's catalog. The hundreds of millions of dollars invested in trying to invent the broadband future as Bill Gates had envisioned it, that was all completely written off and completely forgotten. And think back to when Gates dismissed the internet because he couldn't see a way to make money in a medium that was generally free. Well, now he has seemingly embraced free. Internet Explorer is actively given away for free in an attempt to catch up in market share. That's quite an about-face. This all had a gradual but accumulative effect upon Netscape. Its stock price started dropping as investors worried about how the now-active Microsoft Steamroller would affect it. Netscape Navigator's share of the browser market remained dominant, at least at the beginning, but Internet Explorer started making inroads, increasing from virtually nothing in 1995 to 20% of the market share in 1996 and 40% of the market in 1997. Again, aggressive tactics straight out of the old Microsoft playbook had a fair amount to do with the change in fortunes. Because, as always, Microsoft knew it could leverage the power of its operating system platform. For the average American to get on the internet, they needed to dial in via an internet service provider, or ISP. Microsoft had developed its own ISP in the form of the Microsoft Network, MSN. But the most popular ISP at the time was America Online. AOL, as you'll recall, had its own web browser, which it had purchased out from under the nose of Microsoft in 1994. But Windows 95 would have an install base of 65 million users by the end of 1996, and AOL only had 5 million users at that point. AOL desperately wanted to get in front of all those new Windows 95 users. On March 12, 1996, AOL announced that it was going to make Internet Explorer its default web browser. No money changed hands, but suddenly an AOL icon was placed on a new folder in all Windows desktops called Online Services. The quid pro quo there was implicit, if not explicit. In short order, Microsoft struck similar deals with CompuServe, the number two ISP, as well as AT&T's WorldNet Internet Service, and Netcom, the leading independent ISP. All of these new partners got icons in the online services folder as well. So as Americans came online in increasing numbers, the default way to browse the web was suddenly Internet Explorer, no matter which ISP they used to log in. The leverage power of the OS platform proved itself once again. And as promised, Internet Explorer iterated relentlessly. Versions 2 and 3 of Internet Explorer were developed concurrently. By Internet Explorer 3.0, reviewers were beginning to say that Microsoft maybe had the superior browser. Internet Explorer was generally measured to be faster than Navigator. And for the first time, the Internet Explorer team was the first to introduce browser and web innovations, such as cascading style sheets. Netscape found its fortune suddenly in freefall. 
From May 1996, with a high of $75, shares in Netscape fell to $35 by the end of August. It was the battle that Netscape had been girding for from the very beginning. Jim Barksdale told Time Magazine, quote, They weren't going to miss it, the browser market. We had always expected Microsoft to get hardcore about the internet, end quote. But there was little they could do to stem the tide. Strong profit growth eventually turned to steep losses for Netscape. Sentiment in the industry and on Wall Street was beginning to turn as well. PC Week declared, quote, Microsoft may still be number two in the internet race, but it's rapidly closing the gap, end quote. Netscape's entire get-big-fast strategy was designed to claim the market share and become the de facto standard before competitors like Microsoft noticed. The hope had been that they could achieve a market share and a mind share that would be impossible to dislodge. But now, it looked as though even the head start Netscape had managed to earn might not be enough to fend off Microsoft's muscle. It felt as though history was repeating itself. Microsoft was probably going to dominate and smother another software market. The obituaries began to be written for Netscape. A market researcher from Gartner Group told Newsweek, quote, People aren't asking anymore if Microsoft will be killed by the Internet, but whether Microsoft will dominate the Internet. No less a luminary than Steve Jobs told Wired Magazine in 1996, quote, If you don't cross the finish line, if the web doesn't reach ubiquity in the next two years, Microsoft will own the web, and that will be the end of it. End quote. Perhaps smelling victory, Microsoft doubled down in aggressiveness. From the very beginning, Gates had taken great pains to insist that Internet Explorer, like the MSN network, was not a separate product. Both, according to him, were integral parts of Windows 95. MSN was how Windows people got online, and Internet Explorer was how Windows people surfed the web. Another program, Outlook, was how Windows did email. It was all the same thing, part of a holistic Windows experience, or so Microsoft claimed. But at least for a while, Netscape Navigator was still the industry standard web browser. And as such, there were plenty of users out there who preferred to surf the web using Netscape Navigator. These customers demanded that their personal preferences be honored. And so in an effort to please this constituency, computer manufacturers began offering new computer buyers a choice. If you were fine with the default Internet Explorer option, then that's what you would get with your new PC. But if you wanted to browse with Netscape, then the manufacturer would preload your computer with Navigator instead. Microsoft, of course, could not countenance such an arrangement. Once more, they turned to another old tried-and-true practice. Hardball. Compact Computers was one such manufacturer that had been replacing Internet Explorer with Netscape Navigator on some of the models they sold if users requested it. In June 1996, Compact received a, quote, notice of intent to terminate, end quote, from the Microsoft legal team. In no uncertain terms, Microsoft threatened to cancel Compaq's Windows 95 license 
unless the company returned the Internet Explorer and MSN icons to the Windows 95 desktop on all the computers it shipped, regardless of the buyer's preference. Compaq argued that it just wanted to give its customers the choice of software they preferred, but Microsoft didn't budge. And so Compaq faced a stark choice, either back down or find itself unable to ship Windows machines. Compaq, of course, chose to back down. This was classic software tying, of course. Microsoft was leveraging Compaq's dependence on the dominant operating system in the market, Windows, to coerce the manufacturer into favoring Microsoft software. Features, Microsoft would claim, but products, others would insist, over those of competitors. Theoretically, this was exactly what the consent decree had forbidden. It's unclear if Microsoft truly thought it could get away with all this bullying, if perhaps its argument that programs like MSN and Internet Explorer were merely features of Windows, and that would win the day. Either way, its declining market share and Microsoft's aggressive tactics finally forced Netscape's hand. In August of 1996, it was revealed in the press that Netscape's outside counsel had sent a letter to the Department of Justice claiming that Microsoft was in violation of the consent decree. Another in a long line of government investigations into Microsoft business practices was launched that September. The wheels were in motion for what would eventually become one of the largest antitrust lawsuits in American history. Whether it would be enough to save Netscape's skin, that was an open question. As an aside, we can look back and see that Bill Gates seemingly had the last laugh even before these issues would wind their way through the United States court system. Microsoft's pivot towards Internet Explorer proved prescient. Whether or not Microsoft led the industry and drove Internet adoption, Microsoft very much profited from the Internet revolution's early stages. Millions upon millions of people were eager to jump on this Internet bandwagon, and by and large, they purchased PCs to do so. By 1998, PC shipments reached 100 million a year, fully five times the 20 million a year that had shipped in 1990, long before the internet was a thing. Microsoft's market cap went up almost 3,500% in that time. And Bill Gates' wealth, of course, increased proportionately along with it. 